Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We'd love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit us online at www.liferva.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been exploring the concept of neighbors, particularly the idea of what it means to be a neighbor. Uh, and we've been using the idea presented by a children's program that ran for nearly 30 years, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, how many of you are fans of Mr. Rogers? All right. Uh, he daily declared in song, I noticed Pastor Thompson's wife, Robin, did not raise her hand because she doesn't even know who he is. Um, but <laughs> he daily declared in song, won't you be my neighbor? And uh, I thought maybe I would continue with the children's television songs this week. I was thinking about a song that I heard as a kid. I thought it was from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but after doing a little research, it turned out it was from Sesame Street, uh, which I just so happens I watched either right before or right after Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood practically every day as a child, and so it's easy to see how those got mixed up in my brain. Um, but the words of the song were this, who are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood? Oh, who are the people in your neighborhood, the people that you meet? each day. And then the song would proceed to talk about the various people in the neighborhood, their jobs, what they did for a living, the difference that they made for folks in the neighborhood. It revealed how different people were known by different things, and it invoked images of respect and honor for the various people who make a difference in the neighborhood each and every day. And so that song kind of danced around in my brain all week. Who are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. Sing it with me. Who are the people in your neighborhood? <laughs> the people that you meet each day. Ironically, although our world is more connected than ever, I would dare say that most of us live our lives pretty isolated and not known very well in our neighborhoods. Uh, I was mentioning in first service, I know uh, the people that live across from me because uh, we're connected on Facebook and I see their kids growing up and we speak across the yard. Uh, the guy diagonally from me uh, we wave. He's a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, and I'm a Cowboy fan, so, you know, we have that mutual animosity that's natural there, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, you know, we wave, but we don't really know each other, and the guy next door to me, I know that he's done some work on his house recently, and we've talked about that, but I don't really know, know the people in my neighborhood, and it hasn't always been that way. I grew up in a rural area in Caroline County where uh, my dad still lives. He's, it's considered to be pretty rural, but ironically, we knew people in our neighborhood. We didn't have a neighborhood, but we knew people in our neighborhood, right? We were known in the neighborhood. People knew if they needed help working on their car, Clyde Pavey was the man to call on, and he would help them out. Uh, many of them now know that if they need a lawnmower, Clyde Pavey will help them out. Uh, growing up, we knew that my Uncle Francis could help. If your furnace messed up and you needed heat in the middle of the night, no matter what time, he would come out and work on your furnace, and people knew that about him. I knew my Uncle Edwin could get me boxes and cardboard for projects at school. And when I went off to college, he got me boxes that had fold-down lids to help me carry my stuff to school. He worked in a box factory, and everybody knew that if you needed cardboard, Edwin was the man to talk to. People knew that my grandfather always had fresh vegetables from April through October. You could stop in his yard, and pretty good chance you could leave with food for a small amount of pocket change, he would give you a great big bag of groceries. And there were many people that came without pocket change, and he still gave them a big old bag of groceries. 
Uh, people knew he would be in the garden working, and they'd ride by and toot their horn, and he'd raise up or throw a hand in the air and go right back to picking whatever it was that he was working in. Uh, people knew that the Pavey House, where I grew up, was a place where you could pretty much any afternoon play basketball, football, baseball. People would get off the bus at our house, and they would play until it was so dark you could, couldn't see the hand in front of your face. Uh, and, and that was the way it was at my house. We had three boys in our house, and my cousin lived next door, and so there was already uh, pretty much half of any team you needed to play, and so we, we just had guys show up, and we played. Uh, people knew that Lester Satterwhite owned the country store, and he sold tons of penny candy, but often... Uh, he would let me and my friend Kenny Durrett have a pocket full of atomic fireballs for no money at all and let us walk out with plenty of uh, hot balls in our pocket, you know. People knew that Gary Moore owned the larger grocery store down the street, and he was generous, and he was willing to support our baseball team, and he bought us uniforms when we didn't have the money to buy them. And if you had a fundraiser, he was always willing to donate. He was known to be really kind and loving and and just hanging out at the store, people were always there talking to him. You could walk in at any time, and there'd be five men sitting around the Coca-Cola cooler, and they'd all be talking and hanging out in the middle of the day. We knew the people in our neighborhood. People were known by what they did, by who they were, by their character, by their conduct. They were known. And so I began to think this week, how are we known individually? What are you known for? Most people uh, when they hear your name, what do they think of? How are you known? It's my title for today is exactly that, known in the neighborhood. Known in the neighborhood. How are you known in your neighborhood? Are you known as the friendly guy in the neighborhood? Are you known as the family that gives out the full-size candy bars at Halloween time to trick-or-treaters? That's what my wife wants to be known as. Uh, Maybe your house is the one that gives out tracts about how evil Halloween is instead of candy. I don't know, maybe. Maybe you're known as the grumpy man with the great yard who dares you to walk across his grass. You're known as Mr. Wilson in the Dennis the Menace movie. I don't know. Maybe you're known as the busybody who knows everything that's happening in the neighborhood. Or you're known as the one who can be counted on or the one that nobody will count on. How are you known? One of humanity's greatest needs is to know and to be known. Uh, Dr. Bennis Sherman writes, one of the most fundamental and universal desires is to be known, truly known by the people we care about. This is most true in intimate relationships. We want to feel that someone knows and understands us deeply and thoroughly. We want to be loved by someone who knows us this deeply. We all want to be known, truly known, and that's why our reputation, how you are known, is so important. Because depending on the persona you are putting off, people may never get to know the real you because the you that they know, they have determined maybe not someone they want to know based on your reputation, the attitude you display, the posts you make on Facebook, the pictures you put on Instagram, the comments that you make about others. So many ways people can form opinions about us in this day and age. How are you known? And then I began to think, how is the church known? When people hear the name Life Church in our community, what do they think? When they hear the term Christian in our world today, what do they think? What connotations come to mind when people hear the word church? And when I say church, I'm not just talking about this local body. I'm talking about churches in general around the world, Christianity as a whole. As Christians, many times, we've become known more for what we're against than what we're for. I think that's sad. 
I know that we want to be seen as a beacon of hope and love, and I wonder sometimes if when Jesus looks at Christians, I wonder if he's pleased with how they're actually known in the neighborhood. Dan Kimball wrote a book called, I Like Jesus, But Not the Church. In that book, he shows the results of hundreds of interviews where he asked people their opinions of Jesus and their opinions of Christians. And he said when he asked people about Jesus and what they thought of him, their faces would light up. They would say things like, Jesus was beautiful. I want to be like him. Jesus was a liberator of women. Jesus cared about people. I'm all about Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus was enlightened. He had higher truth. He gave out people. He took care of people. But with the second question, what do you think about Christians? Their expressions change dramatically. Christians have taken the teachings of Jesus and really messed them up. I would want to be a Christian, but have I never really met one? Christians are dogmatic and closed-minded. Christians are supposed to be loving, but I've never met any who are. Christians have a political agenda, and they're always judgmental and negative. How is it possible that Jesus and the religion that bears his name, Christianity, became such polar opposites in the eyes of the world? Is it an accurate view or just a flawed sample set? Did he just pick a bunch of really bad people in his interview, or is it symptomatic of a larger problem that I see in the world today? How is it that a man who made such an impact on history with a simple message of loving God and loving others, how did that get so twisted in the minds of the world? Now, I know they're just people's opinions, and opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. And I know that the church in general has done many amazing things in the world. But when you take a moment to listen to the words that come out of people's mouths, when you take a moment to watch what known Christians, even pastors have said from time to time, what they post on, on, on social media or what they shout to the heavens, what they come out on news broadcast and say, the things they spew in the name of Christianity, it's no wonder that the gap between how people feel about Jesus and how people feel about his church grows wider and wider. One pastor that, if I called his name, you would immediately know him. He's passed on from this life now. But he said this one day on, on, on a news channel. If you're not a born-again Christian, you're a failure as a human being. Now, won't you come and join my church? No, you know what I mean? It's horrible. George Bush Sr. once said, no, I don't know that atheists should be considered citizens. Not nor should they be considered patriots. It's one nation under God. So he's equating their belief system with even their ability to be a citizen in his country. Do you see why people get frustrated with Christians thinking they're about hate speech? We have all seen the signs from protest about how God hates abortionists and he hates homosexuals. And even as I typed my notes for this message, I was embarrassed that people in the name of Christ have propagated hate. And if I'm being honest, I have left out hundreds of comments that I found this week that were even more inflammatory that I could have read today, but in the interest of time and my desire not to spend my time giving voice to such ignorance and hatred, I chose to leave them out. And I'm choosing today to not even get started on the hateful rhetoric that is spewed over mask and vaccine and voter irregularities and racial tensions and sexuality issues and abortion and politics and all sorts of other items that cloud the landscape of today's world, even among church people that argue and fight, even within the four walls of the building sometimes, over these issues. 
And the sad part is the loudest so-called Christians have a 24-7 platform to spew ignorance and hate through social media and the 24-hour news cycle. It's no wonder that people can't comprehend how supposed followers of Jesus seem to be filled with so much anger and malice and hatred toward anyone who doesn't align with them on their favorite soapbox issue. And so I ask again, how did the message of Jesus, a message of love, compassion, grace, how did that message become what is perceived in our society today as the message of Christianity? You see, the church at its core, when it sticks to the book, when it sticks to the message of the cross, it does not have a message problem. We don't have a message problem at the church. What we have in general is a branding problem. Because Jesus told us what our marketing plan should be. And we've gotten so far off message that we've lost sight of how we are to be known in the neighborhood. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. I think this passage is extremely valuable and important in your Christian walk. And so we're going to share it today. John chapter 13. Last week, if you remember, we talked about how Jesus basically in his ministry utilized the Jewish teaching that all the law and commandments could be fulfilled if we would learn to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, body, and if we would learn to love our neighbor as ourself. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that if you do that, when a man said, hey, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know the law. Tell me what the law says. He says, hey, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, then go and do likewise. He literally is saying, you can inherit eternal life. You can be saved if you will love people and love God like he calls you to do. So Jesus recognizes that his time is coming to a close on the earth. He knows that his crucifixion is coming, and he gathers with his disciples for it will really be what we call the Last Supper uh, in the upper room in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Historical references be, uh, that we know, we know show that this room was actually a second floor room, most likely owned by Peter's sister-in-law, who also happened to be the mother of John Mark, who happens to be the writer of the book of Mark, just for historical purposes there. Uh, Jesus has his 12 disciples gathered in the room for a meal. Paintings by Leonardo da Vinci show them at a long table with straight back chairs, and that is not how it happened. They were probably sitting on the floor, leaning on pillows, eating on a blanket. It was more like a picnic lunch than it was sitting at a banquet table. Um, and so as they're sitting on the floor in this room, Jesus gets up and he puts on a towel and he grabs a wash basin and he goes around the room to his disciples and he begins to wash their feet. And after he has washed their feet, he begins to share with them what will be his last words to them before his crucifixion. And so knowing that he is soon to die... I think those are words that are pretty important because if I knew I was about to die and I had my 12 closest people in my life around me, I'd want to share some important stuff with them, right? This is what you need to do. This is what, these are the things that are important. And so Jesus gives them what would be his lasting instructions to his disciples. John chapter 13 and verse 33. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command. It's not that this was really a new command. 
The concept of loving others is everywhere in the Gospels. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. What's new is the measuring stick by which your love was to live up to. As I have loved you, you must now love others. So he's not telling them anything new. They know they got to love others, but he's giving them a qualifier. He's saying, hey, as I have loved you, that's the level you got to live up to. And just before this, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, and then he says, the way I've loved you, you need to love others. So he was investing something in them. He was doing for them. He was showing them this love. Jesus is saying that you're supposed to copy him. Again, I mentioned it last week. Paul says we're to be imitators of Christ. Jesus is saying, copy me. To truly fulfill this command, we must love like Jesus loves. When you look at it from that perspective, it's easy to see where the church has gone wrong, why we have a branding problem, uh, why Christians are many times known to be hateful and judgmental in the neighborhood. Because we don't love the way Jesus loved. And I'm calling us to change that today. It's a lot easier to shout and to protest and to say mean things, to build walls or talk about our beliefs instead of following the command, love like I love. Maybe it's easier just to do what everyone else does. Maybe we think Jesus' command is too simplistic. How are they ever going to straighten out? We got to get them living right. We got to straighten them out. We got to tell them what's wrong with them. Could it possibly be that Jesus really wasn't that complicated? What if it wasn't meant to be our responsibility to straighten out the world? It was our responsibility to love them and let God do the rest. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite commentary writers about this verse, he says, This passage is the badge that the Christian community wears before the watching world. As we read verse 35, we are bound to cringe with shame at the way in which professing Christians have treated each other down through the years. We have turned the gospel into a weapon of our own various cultures. We've hit each other over the head with it, burned each other at the stake with it. We have defined the one another so tightly that it means love the people who reinforce your own sense of who you are. For so long, I think we as Christians have been more caught up in being right or being on the correct side of the aisle that we have lost the essence of the message of Jesus to love others. Not just love them, but love them the way he loves them. We're willing to love people as long as they fit our box, right? We got our list of rules and we got a list of things that we think are right. And so if you fall into that box, well, bless God, we love you. But if you don't, I'm having a harder time loving you. And Jesus calls us to love regardless of the box, Regardless of where they fit, regardless of if you and I have nothing in common, disagree on everything, I still got to love you. Why? Because God called me to love like he loves. And that's why the early church grew so fast. They live in a world a lot like ours. They had to deal with wars and other religions and different opinions on sexuality. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a pagan culture and there was a God for everything. Yet, you do not read in history books about protest, about trying to get governments to do what they wanted. Instead, they infiltrated the world they lived, that they lived in by their love for God and their love for each other. In the early third century, Tertullian, who was a church father, he wrote, It is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. The brand is this. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. See, they had taken Jesus' words seriously. 
When Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends and then turned and said, by the way, you're my friends, Jesus was letting them know up front, hey, there's no greater love in the world than my willingness to lay down your life for your friends. And the early church adopted that and they took it upon themselves to love God and love others. And so they went out and they were known by their love for one another so much that people looked at them and said, my God, they'll even be willing to die for one another. That's the kind of love we need to have as a church. Can you say amen? When he said, love one another as I have loved you, they took it seriously. And they went out and they showed it to a world that was in need of love. We should be known in the neighborhood for love. That should be our brand. That should be our marketing strategy. That should be the purpose and the point of everything we do. That is how we should be known. One author said it this way, nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. There are many places you can go to find communities of shared interests. There are many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music or gardening or politics, but it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a circle of Christ followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them, who is, exhibit love not based on the mutuality or attractiveness of his menders, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone. I thought about it this morning. Jesus literally pulled out a basin and began to wash the feet of 12 people, 11 of which they loved him, he loved them, it was great. One of which had gone out of his way to not only betray the Lord, but sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver to the, to, to, to the folks that were coming to arrest him. And he washed his feet anyway. Loving each other is hard, right? Showing love to other Christians, that's hard. Showing love to non-Christians, that's difficult. It's easier for me to wear a Christian t-shirt than to listen to a friend is going through a difficult marriage. Instead of stepping into the dirt and the pain of each other's lives, it's easier to say, I'll pray for you, right? Oh, brother, I'm praying for you, and walk on about my day. While praying's not wrong, nor is wearing a Christian t-shirt. I got one that says, uh, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus. And then it has the scripture of the story of Jesus taking a nap on a boat. All you boat owners out there really appreciate that one. Go home, take a nap. Jesus did. I wear it sometimes and when I walk in restaurants, like people will look at it and notice and suddenly they're looking at me and laughing and I'm like, what are they laughing at? Oh, it's my shirt. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with Christian t-shirts. There's nothing wrong with telling people you'll pray for them, but I think we miss sometimes what God really wants us to do. It's easier for me to point out why I'm right and why you're wrong instead of trying to figure out what we can learn from each other. Stephen Covey, who wrote the seven laws of, or seven habits of highly effective people, one of his very first habits is seek first to understand and then to be understood. The church has had that backwards for so long. We want to make sure you understand what you need to do to be saved before we ever understand what you're going through that got you to this point. I'm all for getting you saved. Don't miss the point. But I think Jesus wants me to show you love so that your salvation becomes more important because you recognize that you're serving a God who loved you so much that he didn't care about all that you'd been through and all that you were doing and all the mess-ups you had. He still loved you that much to die for you and bring you into relationship with him.
loving our neighbors, loving each other. It's easier to talk about. It's hard to put into practice. I mean, think about it. What's more difficult to learn than love? How do you love somebody when you get no love in return? You only get withdrawal or you only get ingratitude from them. How do you love them? How do you love without being trapped or being used or being taken advantage of? How do you love when you got your own problems? What do you, who takes care of you? you gotta, you got to self-care, right, protect yourself. Who takes care of you? Paul Miller says, we instinctively know that love leads to commitment. So we look away when we see a beggar. We might have to pay if we look too closely and care too deeply. Loving means losing control of our schedule, our money, our time. When we love, we cease to be the master and we become the servant. And that's really what love always leads to. When you really love, it always leads back to servanthood. Back to us being an imitator of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, I love the way the NIV puts this. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. So we have our example. We have the example that we need to live by. The very same Jesus who brought, brought, who being a Christian means you're supposed to be like, we must be known by loving others the way he has loved us. We must be known by our love for others. And when we look at Jesus, I think there are attributes about him that we need to learn to emulate. I know Sometimes we, we, we get these kind of messages, we get inspired, we think, oh yeah, we're going to love people. But I want to give you some, some points to take home with you today, if that's okay. When you look at Jesus, what are some of the attributes that you want to emulate uh, that we must imitate in our lives if we're be to, to be known by that kind of love? The first characteristic of the love of God that I think we need to emulate is that we first must have a sacrificial love. The disciples could have, would have certainly understood why Christ was saying, love one another just like I have loved you. They had literally just seen their dusty, nasty feet be washed by the God of the universe who created all. Jesus could have almost said, love like I'm showing you right now. He had just washed their feet. It was a clear example of Christ humbling himself, his self-sacrificing love for them. Jesus then, he leaves the upper room and he literally gives his body, his, his life himself as a sacrifice for all humanity. He sacrificed by being willing to go to the cross for each of our sins, mistakes, shortcomings. And I got a bunch of them and you probably do too. Maybe not. Maybe all of y'all are perfect. But me, I know who Rodney is. Maybe you don't know me like you need to know me. I need to share probably. Rodney got stuff. I got issues. I got stuff that is wrong in my life. I got things that God had to save me from. And he went to the cross long before I ever agreed to love him. And he died for me long before I ever said, Jesus, I'll give my life to you. His whole life had been a sacrifice for the world that he came to save. He gave himself a sacrifice for us all. He sacrificed the glory of heaven to die a criminal's death on the cross, even dying for people that hate his name and despise him. He died for them. It's easy to love yourself. It's easy to love people that love you. But he calls us to be known by our love for others, whether they love you or they don't. I read it last week. He commanded us to love our enemies. We're to be known by our love for others. 
It's a sacrificial love. The second attribute of Christ's love that we need to emulate is that his love is a forgiving love. Love for others, if it's to be like the love of Jesus, it has to be a forgiving love because we have to forgive just as we've been forgiven by Jesus. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Jesus gave us unforgiveness, undeserved forgiveness. We sang the song Amazing Grace. Have you ever stopped to think about what grace really means? It means I could do nothing to deserve what he gave me, and he gave it to me anyway. We didn't deserve his forgiveness. We could do nothing to earn it. As a matter of fact, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' love for you and for me reached down into our sinful condition, and he withheld the judgment that we deserved and certainly had earned and instead gave us forgiveness, love, kindness that we did not deserve. Nothing should be too great for us to forgive others. I uh, heard somebody say this one time in regards to grace, and I I feel like I want to add this right now. If you were going down the road today and you were stopped by a police officer and he let you off without giving you a ticket because you were speeding, that's mercy. But if he in turn not only didn't give you a ticket, which is mercy, but he took you and bought you ice cream, that's grace. Because grace gives you something that you had no way of deserving anyway, right? You deserve the ticket. He could have given you a ticket. You deserved it, but he didn't. But grace is what he gives you that you don't deserve. He says, hey, here's extra. Here's a blessing. I'm going to pour love on your life. Yes, I could go ahead and just keep you from suffering the punishment for sin. That's mercy. But instead, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to wrap my arms around you, and I'm going to give you heaven to gain, and I'm going to put my life on you, and I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to allow you to walk in my grace, and I'm going to make you into the person I want you to be. That's the grace of God. We always run around like, thank God for saving me from my sin. Yes, that's mercy. But man, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that took an old wretch like me. I once was lost. And he didn't just say, I'm forgiving you for being lost. He found me. And now he gave me the ability to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit because of his great love for me. That's amazing grace. The third attribute of the love of Jesus that we need to emulate is that our love for others must be a visible love. Jesus declared that all will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. All will know. The implication being that this love we have for others will be visible and observable and therefore must be demonstrated. And it's important to note that it's not visible by a few. It's not visible by only the ones that fit my cup of tea. It's not visible by only the ones that agree with me. He said it would be visible by all. All will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Don't just tell me that you love me. Show me that you love me, right? It goes back to a statement I read last week. Jesus said, love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what reward is that? You already have your reward because y'all love each other. How about loving those that are your enemies and doing good to those that despitefully use you and persecute you? That's hard, but that's the kind of love God calls us to have. Our love must go beyond the four walls of this church building It must extend beyond the hours of 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on Sundays. It must be observable on your job, in your school, in your home, in your yards, where you shop, where you eat. 
I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a restaurant in our town in Dover, Delaware, that didn't want to serve groups of Bible college kids because many of them on Friday nights would come in, take up a big table, order a drink, eat a bunch of free chips and salsa, stay for a very long time, and leave a dollar tip if they left a tip at all. And because of those kids and church people that emulated the same, Christians get labeled as being cheap and uncaring and rude. We just ordered 10,000 new business cards as a church. You can pick some up in the lobby today before you leave, but I'm asking you, please don't leave a business card unless you also leave a good tip. And don't leave a church card if you were rude to the waitress, even if they deserved it. Even if your tea glass didn't get filled up every time it got just under half filled. You don't know what your waitress may have been through before they showed up for work today. And what they may need is just you showing them just a little bit of love to make their day and to set them back on the right path. Don't go around the community telling people you go to this church or even that you're a Christian if your actions are revealing something completely different. I don't care if you take your dollar bills and fold them into a cross. That is not a tip. Sorry, it's just a pet peeve. I'm sorry. Your love for others should be evident. People should know that you have the love of Christ in you by your actions toward others. Anything less tears down the witness of God's kingdom on the earth. We ought to be known as the most generous, the most kind, the most friendly. Being warm and friendly is important when you're here, but it's so much more important when you're outside of here. Because how we are known in the neighborhood makes all the difference of how Jesus is represented to our world. At the beginning of my message, I mentioned how one of the greatest desires each of us has is to be known, truly known. The reality, many of us live behind walls that we've built, afraid of ever allowing anyone to know the real us, haven't we? Some of us have been hurt, some of us abused, taken advantage of, treated wrongly. And as a result, the idea of being loved and loving others is such a foreign concept. We don't allow anyone to know the real us, less on express love to, uh, to others through, because of the things that have happened to us. And If it's that way in the church you can rest assured that it's a condition of our world that is far spread and wide. And people are out there in our world who are hidden because they're so afraid of being known. In a day and age in which we appear to be more connected than ever with every visible social media platform available, and I'm on several of them, to where we can literally live our lives for public consumption, we have taught ourselves to edit and filter our image to the point that we portray a brand that is not authentic and in many ways is simply a facade built to keep others at a distance, only revealing what I want you to know about me. Can you see how that mentality creates walls, even amongst church people, that prevent us from truly being known, truly being loved, truly being connected to others? You see, to be known requires intimacy. It requires a willingness to bring down the walls or at least step from behind them to reveal those things that are hidden, to be honest and to be transparent, to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. And many times, we're unwilling to do that because in the past, we've been hurt by those who would have and should have known, been known by their love for one another. Tim Keller, a pastor and author, he states this. He said, to be loved and not known is comforting 
but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. As the musicians and singers come, I want to unpack some of that for a moment before we end today. Celebrities are loved, but they're really not known. So it's superficial, and it's why people feel so hurt and betrayed when they find out that the celebrity or athlete or movie star, or even a preacher, turns out to be different than what they appear to be. You ever heard the saying, uh, don't get to know your heroes? Because sometimes what you get to know is not how you've envisioned or pictured them for so long. And right now we see a lot of people that have huge social media followings. When people find out the mistakes they make in their life, when they slip, when they fall, the devastation is great because they are loved, but they're really not known. A lot of us are afraid of being known because we think if people really know us, the real us, they won't love us. So we put up the facade, we fake our way through, we let people see a veiled image, a filtered image rather than reveal our true selves because to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. If you get to know me and you didn't, then you don't love me, man, that scares me to death. So I'm not going to let you know me. Uh, I'll give you the facade and maybe you'll like that, but don't get to know me because that's my greatest fear. But all of us deep down, the one thing we really want is to be known and to be loved. That you would know me, warts and all, that you would know everything about me, that you would know my past, know my, know my dreams for my future, that you would know who I am and what I am, and you'd love me anyway. That's what our dream is. That's what we all want. That's what the world wants. And the reason why the church sometimes has the reputation it does of being judgmental and hateful and unsafe is because people came and they revealed themselves, warts and all. They took down the wall and they shared who they really are. And out of fear or ignorance, someone within the Christian community responded in judgment rather than love. Everyone wants to be known and to be loved anyway. That's the beauty of the love of God. While I was still a sinner, he loved me. While I was unworthy, buried neck deep in my faults and my failures, full of hypocrisy, lies, schemes, unrighteous living, all the things that this world offers, he knew me, yet he loved me. The knowledge of my faults, my mistakes, my past, all the junk, the knowledge of me did not dissuade him from loving me. To be known requires a level of intimacy, a level of love that is not afraid of being vulnerable or real, to being known. And if we want to change how Christians are known in the neighborhood, we've got to respond to those who are revealing themselves, who are showing their true selves, who are desiring to be known. We can't respond with telling them how wrong they are. We can't respond with letting them know that their lifestyle stinks in the nostrils of God. We can't respond with how the Bible says this is an abomination and we've heard it all. We can't respond with the judgment of their sin. That's not our job. Judgment is God's job. Our job is to love like he loves. You see, Jesus saw each of our sins, saw each of the ways our lives and lifestyles sickened him. He didn't bring down judgment. He didn't tell them all the ways that they were wrong. As a matter of fact, the only people I find in Scripture that Jesus had rebukes for 
We're church people who look down their nose at sinners. Somebody told me this morning about how they, they know people and they're friends with people that they're always wanting to go in and turn over tables, right, like Jesus did at the temple. But they want to turn them over in the marketplace. They want to turn them over in the public square. They want to turn them over in government. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus turned over tables in the church lobby because the church people were doing things that they shouldn't be doing instead of showing love. And so today I want to challenge the church, the people that are in this room, the people that say, I'm a Christian, the people that go out into the marketplace in the neighborhood and declare their Christianity and ask you, are you known in the neighborhood by your love for others? Because that's how I want to be known. I want, I'm so thankful God knows me and still loves me, but now my responsibility is to get to know others and love them anyway. And that's how we got to be known in the neighborhood is those that love people no matter what. If you'd all stand with me all over this house, they're getting ready to sing, and as they do, I want to open this altar if you'd like to come. But as you're coming, I want to pray over you at this time. Father, I thank you. I thank you, God, that you showed me so much love. That when I was worthless and a sinner, when I didn't deserve your help, when I didn't deserve to even be welcomed in your presence, you opened your arms and you welcomed me in and you said, come close to me. And if you'll come into me and draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. And if, if you'll come in, I will take that burden off of you and I will lift you up and I will carry you and I will help you through tough times. And I'm so thankful, God, that you were that kind of friend to me, that kind of person who, that kind of God that loved me and knew me and still loved me. And today, God, I pray for the people that are in this room. There are people here, God, that have been hurt, hurt by Christians, hurt by people in this world. And God, we're so sorry that they've aligned them or associated hurt with, with, the, with the church. In the process of that, God, today, I pray that you would lift that off of them and help them to realize that you love them no matter what, that your love is real and true and is for them and it is helping them, God, today to realize that they are in this place for the purpose of loving you and knowing you. And today, God, we surrender ourselves to you completely. Holy God, use us for your glory. Help us to love others the way you've loved us. Thank you for allowing us to experience so great a love. In Jesus' name.
you live in the world today, you know that our world is consumed by fear and many of the actions being taken on a regular basis is because people are operating from a position of fear. Some fear is healthy. To be controlled by fear is not healthy. And there's been many who have tried to equate if you have fear, then somehow you don't have faith. And if you just had more faith, you wouldn't have fear. And I'm here to tell you today that they're not mutually exclusive. If you've got some fear today, it doesn't mean you've lost faith in God. It just means that you're aware of the world that we live in right now. And sometimes things are tough. Things are scary. We do trust God. Yes, we need to have more faith. Sure. But faith doesn't dispel fear. Let me tell you what does dispel fear. I'll tell you how we can stem the tide of fear in our world today. More faith, not going to drive out fear. But John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. You see, if the church started loving the way Jesus loves, and if we would make it our personal ambition to love the way Jesus loves, then guess what? People aren't going to be afraid because the Bible goes on to say that that fear that is in people has to do with punishment. They're afraid that if they do wrong, God's going to bap them over the head and punish them. Therefore, they're afraid. But when we fall in love with Jesus and we share his love, it drives fear away from us. It pushes fear out. It gets rid of fear. And then the writer of John says, we love because he first loved us. That ought to be the that ought to be the the driving force of your every day when you wake up in the morning. God, you loved me. Therefore, I'm going to love. Because you loved me first, oh, I'm going to share the love of God. And that love's going to push out the fear in this world. We want to dispel fear that's running rampant. We got to allow people to experience the perfect, pure, life-altering, life-giving, life-changing love of God. Then we'll be known by our love for one another. Then we're going to be known. Why? Because we'll be who we really are, expressing the love of God shine through us. It came into our life, and we became a conduit of it for the world. Because God loved us in spite of our condition, we can love others in spite of theirs. Can you say amen? We need to love like we've been loved. One more time, let's thank God all over this house. Father, we thank you. God, we're so blessed to be in your presence, to experience you and know you. God, I'm so thankful to be known by you and loved anyway. God, I'm so thankful that you look beyond my faults, my failures, my, my fallacies, my mess-ups, God, and you still love me, and I'm so thankful. And God, today all over this house, I pray that as we leave here, as we go into our world, in our jobs, our neighborhoods, wherever we may live, God, that we would carry this amazing love that you've extended to us and that we would share it willingly and graciously to others, loving them right where they are and allowing them to experience the amazing, perfect love of God so that we can come and dispel the fear in our world by being who we've been called to be, agents of change who express love to others as we've been loved. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the people of God that have come today and celebrate you. I ask you now, God, to go with us as we leave this place. Allow your presence to guide our lives and lead us to people who need to experience your love today and allow us to be the person that brings it to them in Jesus' name. We thank you and we trust in you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for celebrating Jesus with us. And we'll see you next week.